Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning, good morning, good morning. As I get the stage kind of situated here, why don't you just stand up real quickly and wish your neighbor a happy new year. So good morning. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas time of celebrating uh, the birth of Jesus together as, with family and with friends. And now, can you believe it? We're looking forward to a new year, to 2020, 2020. So how many here remember what we were doing just 20 years ago this very week? Think back. 20 years ago this very weak. What were we doing? Most of us were stockpiling resources in preparation for what was marketed as to be the greatest humanity crisis in world history. It was the dreaded coming of not the zombie apocalypse, but something far worse. Y2K. So a refresher, in case you've forgotten, or perhaps you were too young to remember, in 1999, the country was preparing for Y2K, or year 2000, a global computer bug that was predicted to have astronomical impact. The bug came about because computer memory used to be very expensive, especially for large systems. So to save storage space in databases, software programmers cut corners and would abbreviate the four-digit year as a two-digit number. Hence, the year 1976 was stored as 76. 1999 was stored as 99. Everything worked great until the year 2000 came along, and no one knew how these applications were going to respond. Would they translate 00 as 1900 or 2000? Hence all the fuss. So a myriad of predictions ensued like the following. You could lose electricity, not just for a couple hours or days, but for weeks, months, perhaps even a year. Phones could stop working, making it impossible to contact 911 or the police. Military defense systems would crumble. Banks around the world would fail leaving you unable to access funds and eventually spawning a global depression. Traffic signals would cease cease operating and intersections across the U.S. would be congested with traffic accidents. Hospital equipment would fail. GPS systems would cease to work. Elevators would plummet from the top of skyscrapers. The world economy would come to a screeching halt and planes would fall out of the sky. 
As a result of all these predictions, all across the U.S., people bombarded their grocery stores to stockpile water, canned food, medicinal supplies, batteries, and ramen noodles. People transferred their cash to gold because U.S. currency would be worthless. Gun sales shot to the roof. And people were advised to fill up their bathtubs with water and their cars with fuel. Furthermore, experts advised that on New Year's Eve, we turn off all computer devices and leave them off for the entire weekend after the New Year's Day just as a precaution. They also advised that we limit our consumption of electricity and fuel and to just stay home. However, if you must leave your home, avoid using your credit cards, and do everything in your power to avoid going to the emergency room because no one knew how the systems were going to respond. And lastly, keep your, home, your kids home for the school, from school for the whole week. I'm sure many kids enjoyed that suggestion. It was a pretty dismal outlook, wasn't it? So, what happened, you ask? Well, for the most part, nothing. Nada, zilch. You see, most critical computer systems were already patched and fixed long before the fateful drop of, of the ball in Times Square. But all the hype and hysteria contribu- contributed greatly to the bank accounts of a lot of media personalities and authors. So, now as we turn our focus to 2020. Again, over the years, there's been a lot of speculation as to how we would live in 2020. In the 1960s, Time magazine predicted that machines will be producing so much that everyone in the U.S. will, in effect, be independently wealthy. And popular mechanics suggested that every home would have at least one helicopter. Everyone thought we would be living like the Jetsons and flying houses above the clouds, commuting and flying cars. Oh, I wish that was true. With a personal Android butler to clean up our messes and to prepare our food, life would surely be but a dream. Undoubtedly, we have seen many advances in society and technology while simultaneously furthering the erosion of our moral foundations and societal decay. While we are experiencing unprecedented material blessings, we continue to move further and further away from God as a nation. So, as we look to 2020, does God have anything that He wants to say to His church? and to our community. I love the passage in 1 Chronicles 12.32. It says this. It says about a very specific group of people called the sons of Issachar. It says that they understood the times and knew what Israel should do. What a profound statement. Like the sons of, of Issachar, may we be astute to, to know our own times and to understand how Scripture applies to the season in which we live today. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to be uh, using verses 1 through 8. 
It starts this way. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that it is a light unto our path. And Lord, as we look towards 2020 and what you want to do in us as a body, in your church, and in this community, we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see what the Spirit is saying, and that you'd give us a heart, a heart after you. I pray for your anointing upon this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a little background to our story. Elisha is a powerful prophet of God who now oversees the company of prophets. This is a group of prophets that was spread throughout the land. As a young man, Elisha was discovered by the renowned prophet Elijah while he was plowing his field. Elisha followed and was mentored by Elijah for years and received a double portion of Elijah's power, and to which Scripture now records that Elisha performed twice as many miracles as Elijah. The problem in our story is that a widow approaches Elisha, whose husband has been in the company of prophets. Ironically, Elisha's very name actually means, My God Saves. The widow cries out to Elijah, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. While no information is given in this particular passage about the identification of the dead prophet or his widow, Jewish tradition, as well as the historian Josephus, identifies this dead prophet as being the God-fearing, devout believer named Obadiah. Now, Obadiah served in the court of a very ungodly, ruthless king Ahab and his even more vile wife, Queen Jezebel, who together instituted the worship of Baal and Asherah as a national religion. It was Queen Jezebel's personal mission to kill off all the Lord's prophets, According to 1 Kings 18.3-4, it was said that Obadiah took and hid a hundred prophets in caves and provided for their well-being out of his own income. 
And this, according to tradition, was the reason for our widow's great debt. Now, regardless, if the dead man was Obadiah or not, any member belonging to the company of prophets would have paid a high price for their commitment in the hostile environment of the official bail court. Regarding the widow's debt, it was the practice of their day that any unpaid debt would fall upon family members to pay off. And if they could not pay, creditors would often take family and children as slaves or servants to either work off the debt or as collateral until the debt could be paid in full. This threat facing the the widow was not exaggerated, but real. You can easily imagine the overwhelming fear that plagued her mind. First, she lost her husband, her companion, her provider. And now she stands to lose her sons too. This is devastating. She stands to lose everything. She could have easily become bitter towards God for her situation or even towards her dead husband for leaving her with all this debt and having to deal with these creditors all alone. There is no one to go to. She has no wealthy family member. There is no judge or government office to intervene. For there is no concept in her day of bankruptcy courts, social security, and welfare, and not to mention this was long before Financial Peace University. But God has a plan. When we are faced with a problem... When you are faced with a problem, do you really think that God has a plan? That He is, first of all, fully aware of our problem? And that, secondly, that He has a plan? While the widow may not have had any other option, she does the right thing as she goes to the man of God to intervene. This is life and death situation. She can't sit back feeling sorry for herself. Now, is the time for action. If she doesn't do something, her sons will be taken from her. So whom does she go? She goes to the renowned prophet of God, Elisha, and she cries out for help. She leaves behind any reservation and boldly makes her situation known. Then she makes her appeal based off of her husband's past service and reverence for the Lord. Where do we go when our world is falling apart? And everything is about to be destroyed. Friends, family, God. Often God happens to be the very last we go to because it's hard for us to think that the infinite God is concerned with our problems and that He has a plan. Does He care about my situation? And if He does care, can He do anything about it? Perhaps we think that if we were more spiritual, I had an old teacher that used to say spiritual, if we were more spiritual, we wouldn't be in this situation. We wouldn't have these problems. Think of the embarrassment that revealing her debt would cause her. If they would have been better with their finances, they wouldn't have been in this situation. But again, this is life and death. And so she puts aside her fears, her feelings, and she cries out to Elisha. Elisha responds by asking, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? 
This is an interesting question, right? I'm not sure that this was the response that the widow expected from the prophet. She went to ask for his help. And now he is asking her what items of value she has in her home. Doesn't he know that if she had anything of value, she would have already sold it? This leads to our first point regarding God's plan. Point number one. God's plan requires our participation. This often includes our resources, our abilities, our talents, our gifts, and our time. Even the small, seemingly insignificant things God uses. We see Jesus apply this exact same strategy that Elijah applied. When his disciples approached him about sending the multitudes home, because they didn't have any food. Remember the story? Jesus asked them what they had on hand. And they found a young boy who had some fish and loaves of bread. Jesus took the little that he had, and after giving thanks to God, he multiplied it and fed thousands. Our widow's initial inventory assessment is truly an honest one, in that in her mind, she had nothing of real value. But then she recalls that there was one thing left in her home, a jar of olive oil. Now, olive oil in ancient Jewish culture was extremely valuable as it was a mainstay in everyday cooking. They used it for everything from baking breads and cooking vegetables and cooking meats. Now, They used to use olive oil like my grandmother used bacon fat. My grandmother kept a Folgers coffee can by her stove. And every day she would make bacon or any sausage and stuff. And then she would pour the excess grease and fat into this can of this coffee can. And then when she was making green beans or corn or bread or whatever she was making, she would put a dollop of bacon fat in the green beans or whatever for flavoring. Aside from cooking, olive oil was also used as items such as soaps, skin care, and not to mention oil for lighting lamps, and most importantly of all, for anointing priests and kings. It seems that this item that she discounted was in fact extremely valuable to her culture. Interestingly, Even in our own day, pure olive oil is still very expensive. A single bottle of the purest, ultra-premium, extra-virgin olive oil can fetch as much as $5,000 on Amazon. I'm sure several of you will check that out right now. The problem for our widow wasn't what she had. It was the quantity in which she had it. Now, some Bible versions translate her jar as a small jar. Something like that. Or a bottle. Some interpret it as a flask. (laughs) Regardless, she only had a small portion of oil for which she discounted the value of. We all need to remind ourselves that our infinite, omnipotent God has an affinity for small things. We see this demonstrated in Scripture when another prophet, Samuel, went to anoint the next king. God sent him to Jesse's home, 
who lined up all his sons one by one to, uh, for Samuel to inspect. Samuel looked at the first man. He was tall and strikingly handsome. And he thought, surely this is the next king. But God told him, do not look on the outward, but look at the heart. After rejecting each of Jesse's sons, an exasperated Samuel cries out, Is this all your sons? Oh, well, no. There's, there's this young, small, insignificant David out in the field watching the sheep. His own father had discounted him. But God selected David, and then Samuel anointed this young, small, insignificant lad with olive oil. Later, this discounted boy would go on to defeat the giant Goliath. Point number two. God's plan for us requires bold faith. Jesus said, The kingdom of of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a large tree, and birds come and make nests in its branches. And again, he says, I tell you the truth. If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. I wonder how many things are never accomplished for God simply because we discount them as insignificant. How many thoughts, ideas, dreams die because we deem them as being too small. They aren't as grand as someone else's ideas. And when it comes to our abilities, well, I'm not as talented or as spiritual as this person over here. It is for this very reason that God's God's Word encourages us to not despise these small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. In 1845, Julia Fletcher Carney, a school teacher in Boston, was preparing a lesson for some Bible school children. She wanted to emphasize the value of small things, and so she penned this beautiful little poem. Little drops of water, little grains of sand, Make the mighty ocean and the pleasant land. So the little moments, humble though they may be, make the mighty ages of eternity. Elijah instructs our widow to go around and ask all her neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. The instructions here requires our widows to step out in bold faith. The prophet emphasized that she was not to ask for a few, but for many. I think Elisha understood human nature and our tendency to aim low in our expectations. Oh, how we have difficulty thinking outside our own limitations. The plan of God for this widow requires her participation and bold faith. This is brazen. Imagine going to each of your neighbors in this extremely close-knit community where everyone knows all about your business, that your husband has died and left you in debt. The battle inside her to wimp out 
must have been unbelievable. Have you ever had to ask for something? It's extremely difficult. We all experience the fear of rejection, the jitters, the nerves, being tongue-tied. Imagine, actually most of us can remember the very first time you asked someone out on a date and you were rejected, how that felt. Or the fear of going to your boss and asking him or her for a raise. For years, Sherry and I, my wife, we were part of two different ministries in which we were responsible for raising our own income. Youth with a Mission, or YWAM, is an international missionary organization in which we had the, the privilege of traveling to about 20 different countries and leading um, uh, missions trips. And the second ministry that we were with was called Heal Our Land. It was a, um, a church uh, pr- uh, prayer ministry. Oh, how I dreaded asking people in churches for support. However, I knew that if I wanted to see God accomplish His plan and fulfill His plan in my life, I had to participate and I had to step out in bold faith. What fascinate, what's fascinating about this story is that the measure of God's provision, think about this, the measure of God's provision in His miracle is tied directly to the number of jars she collects. Whoa! It was only limited by the number of jars that she had. Had she wimped out and only asked for a few, then the miraculous provision of God would have been limited to only those few jars. If she holds back, she knows she won't collect the number of jars needed to meet her debt, and her sons will be taken away. So, she musters up the courage and goes to each and every one of her neighbors and gathers as many empty jars as she possibly can. And that leads me to point number three. God's plan requires obedience. Aside of God's plan requiring our participation and bold faith, it also requires obedience. The old hymn had it correct when it said, Trust and obey, for there is no other way. There are times when our faith struggles and we are consumed with doubt. So what do we do in those times? We obey. When our senses speak contrary to God's word, we press on and we obey. When our logic challenges everything we believe, we press on and obey. When the thing we feared most rears its ugly head, we press on and obey. Obedience is the action our faith takes, even when we don't feel like it. It is our response to God when everything in our world is spinning out of control and we don't understand. That's when we do what the widow did. We obey what God has shown us. The prophet instructed her to go into her small home, shut the doors behind, behind her, and she obeyed. There have been many reasons, or that actually there may have been many reasons why she was instructed to shut the door. For instance, perhaps to prevent distractions or to keep her nosy neighbors out of her business. But, like, but I like the reason that the NIV study Bible states, the impending miracle was not intended to be a public sensation, but to demonstrate privately 
God's mercy and grace to this widow. Psalm 68.5 states that God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. And he is about, at this moment, to demonstrate his care in a very personal way to this dear widow. Another observation we can make here is that when she shuts her door, she is now all alone. Think about it. Alone with just herself and her boys. Alone with her thoughts and worry. Sometimes after a tragedy, it is easier to put on a brave face when you're in public. But when we are alone, there is no one to fool, no pretenses to uphold. When we are alone with just our thoughts, our situation and our fears, what do we believe at that very moment? When she is bombarded with the reality of her situation and worry begins to creep in, does she wonder, perhaps it would be best for me to just accept my fate than to live with this false hope and be disappointed when it doesn't happen? Now as she stands there surrounded by the myriad of empty jars of all sorts and sizes, we can easily imagine the, the doubt and fear that could be creeping in. Perhaps she thought to herself, what if this doesn't work? What if I don't have enough faith? She is on the verge of a miracle. She has done everything, and all that is left to do now is simply obey. However, if she gives up now in this moment, she would never see the miracle God intended. Perhaps that is you. Have you also fought the good fight and kept the faith? But now, in the final hour at the verge of your miracle, will you continue to obey? Or perhaps because her husband had been a prophet. Maybe she thought this. Maybe she thought this would have been so much easier for him because he was a prophet of God. And he was more spiritual than I am. Do you identify with this? Perhaps you believe that your spouse, your parents, your children are more spiritual than you are. That things of faith come so much easier for them. Perhaps you've been riding the spiritual coattails of others. But now God is calling you out in 2020. He is saying to you that He is no respecter of persons and that what He has done for others, He will do for you as well. Regardless of whatever thoughts of doubt or fear may have overwhelmed the widow at that moment, there is one thing that defeats both of them, and that is simple obedience. You see, obedience isn't something mystical, but something very practical. It's doing the little things that God has revealed to us. If you have your Bibles open, if you were to flip just a page away in your Bible to 2 Kings 5, we see an interesting story that, that I think highlights us anymore. We see the story of Naaman the leper who comes to the same prophet Elisha for a miracle to heal his leprosy. Naaman is instructed to go dip in the Jordan seven times. He has traveled afar for his miracle. He is on the verge of a miracle, and all he has to do is obey and dip seven times. 
However, he refuses because he expected some grand demonstration of God's power. And when told to wash in the muddy Jordan, he thought it was demeaning and too simple. Thankfully, his servant challenged him by saying, Had the prophet asked you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more then when he tells you to wash and be cleansed? Thankfully, he listens to his servant, and and upon obeying, God cures him of his leprosy. He was this close to missing his miracle because of doubt and disobedience. In our story, our widow obeys. She takes her small jar of oil, and then she begins to slowly pour. And as was promised, the miraculous happened. Oil continually, continuously pours out of her small jar, more than would make any logical sense. And as soon as one jar was filled, her boys quickly swapped it with another, and then another, and then another, and then another. Let me, let me pause here for just a moment and discuss an important life lesson I think that is very important for all of us with, with children. When it comes to our children, of course, we need to protect them and shield them from the worries of this world. But when appropriate, include them in praying and stepping out in faith. Years ago, Sherry and I were transitioning from ministry to a job in Indiana. We were living in an upstairs apartment with our three kids when, a heavy, when heavy chain smokers moved in beneath us. Everything in our apartment smelled like cigarettes, including our clothing, and it greatly aggravated uh, miasma. But buying a home was, was not an option for us at that time. It was nearly impossible and an, enor- and, uh, an enormous step of faith for us. For I was told that I didn't have enough years of experience in IT in my job to qualify for a mortgage, and we didn't have the full amount saved up for a down payment. However, we were desperate and began trusting God for a house. So, we felt compelled to involve our whole family in in praying through this situation. So to make it interesting, I made a large game board similar to the game of life. And for each family member, I took a photo of them and made a game piece. I think Tim is back there. He's loving this picture of him. I, t- I took their photo and made stand-up characters. And for every obst- obstacle that we faced, I made either a brick or a stone wall that I would put on the game board. And then several times throughout the week, we would gather together as a family and we would move the characters along the board. When God provided a breakthrough, we would give thanks to God as a family and move the characters forward. When we encountered any obstacle or setback, we would gather together and pray as a family. After several months and a few setbacks, our family saw God miraculously open the door for us to purchase a home. I can't stress enough the importance of including your children in your walk of faith. Let them see God's provision firsthand. So, back to our story. Our widow's sons were participating with her in the miracle that was unfolding in their home. One by one, they swapped out a full jar 
with an empty jar until every single jar was filled to the brim. And as she was filling up the last jar, she cried out, I need another jar! There are no more! Her son replied. And immediately, the oil ceased. Not a drop was wasted. The full measure of her faith is now demonstrated by the number of jars she collected and was now filled with oil. The widow takes the jars of the finest pure oil and receives enough from their sales to not only pay off her debt, but to also sustain both herself and her sons. Worship team, please come forward. We see in this amazing story how God had a plan to provide for the widow, and that plan required her participation, bold faith, and obedience. Now as we look forward to 2020, let us ponder not only our needs, but, but also how we can see God's kingdom expand into our hurting community. We are surrounded by individuals and families who desperately need Christ. Marriages that may be on the verge of collapse. Families that are struggling financially to get by. Individuals who wonder if life is even worth living anymore. Thousands of children growing up without any knowledge of the amazing God that we serve. And seniors who may be living life all alone. With all these needs that surround us, do we even consider that God actually has a plan? Like our widow's story, God does have a plan to meet these needs. And that plan requires our participation. It requires bold faith and it requires obedience. This miraculous outpouring of oil the widow had was only limited by the availability of empty jars that she collected. Every quarter, our prayer ministry team gathers together and prays over our church and this community. And you're more than welcome. We, we have an incredible prayer team here. And God wants to continue to expand that. If you're interested in joining our, our prayer ministry, if you want to step out into it, it is phenomenal to see what God is doing. And we, we gather together every quarter to pray over this church and over our community. And we have some exciting things coming this next year with, pray, uh, with prayer rooms and stuff. God is doing a good thing here. Several months ago, as we were praying... We felt challenged that God desired to expand our vision for our church and our community. Vision to reach the lost. Vision to see His Spirit poured out. Like the widow pouring her oil into the empty jars, God wants to pour out His vision upon this church. Let us not discount our abilities, our talents, and resources as being insignificant or too small. But this year, let us give God our time, our resources, our talents, so that we can participate in His plan to meet these needs. I'm going to close here uh, by reading the lyrics of a powerful song written by Matthew West titled, Do Something. I woke up this morning, saw a world full of trouble now, thought, how did we ever get so far down? And how is it ever going to turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven. I thought, God, why don't you do something? Well, I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty, children sold into slavery. The thought disgusted me. 
So I shook my fist at heaven, said, God, why don't you do something? He said, I did. Yeah, I created you. Happy New Year, everybody. You can either stand or remain sitting, whichever you choose, but this song is um, should be familiar to all of you as far as the tune goes. So. Should nothing of our effort stand or legacy
King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. This incredible story that we've told today about the widow, we mostly focus on the oil. I think there's something that we could draw from the empty pots. If you could envision that each one of these represents us. We all are different shapes, different sizes. We all have different gifts, different talents, different abilities. Some great, some small. But imagine this pot right now, this pitcher being filled with other stuff. Gravel, dirt, whatever. How much oil could I actually pour into it? Not very much. And that's the same way it is with our lives. We say, God, we want you to use us. We want you to pour out your spirit upon us. But I have to ask, how full is, how full is our pictures? How full are we? Do we give God space? Do we give him opportunity to pour himself out into our lives? If you're interested in joining me and committing this two, uh, 2020 to the Lord, this is an awesome opportunity. I believe God wants to do great things in this upcoming year. And he's already told us that that great thing requires our participation. So between you and your God, right now, I want to encourage you to say, God, I pour myself out. I empty myself so that you can fill me with the things and the, that you desire. So right now where you're at, if you feel like standing in response to this, if you feel like holding your hands out, go ahead and do it right now. God, there's no greater honor than to be used by you to see your kingdom grow and expand. Like these pots that we see, Lord, we want to empty ourselves out so that you can fill us, so that you can pour yourself into us. As we look forward to this next year, we have no idea what it holds, the good, the hard. We want to be your instruments. We want you to use us to reach our community. We want to use you to use us to grow your kingdom, to build your church. And so, Lord, we ask that you would fill us up as a church. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.